Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at person sitting next to me and you know what they were doing they were also playing chumba casino coincidence i think not everybody's loving having fun with it chumba casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime anywhere even at thirty thousand feet so sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus that's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life no purchase necessary btw void were prohibited by law see terms and conditions 18 plus Hello and welcome to a new podcast, The Paddock and the Pavilion with Stephen Wallace. In each show, Stephen will interview someone connected to the world of horse racing or cricket. This weekend on The Paddock and the Pavilion, we have a double bill of shows with two famous cricketers, Roland Butcher and Ebony Rayford Brent. The first show with Roland was recorded in mid-July when we talked about the opportunities for black cricketers in English cricket and how to improve them. And the second show on Sunday with Ebony, talks about her ACE programme at Surrey County Cricket Club and also the return of women's international cricket, which begins on the 21st of September when England take on the West Indies in a five-match T20 series. Don't forget you can download the show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify or Stitcher. Give us a rating and reverse and let your friends know about the show. I hope you enjoy the first of our double bill this weekend. Enjoy the show. Welcome to the Pavilion for this special edition of the Paddock and the Pavilion with Roland Butcher. Thank you for joining me, Roland. Great pleasure. In this episode, we are going to chat about Black Lives Matter and its effect on English cricket and what needs to be done to improve opportunities for black cricketers following the death of George Floyd on the 25th of May. Roland, how did George Floyd's death affect you and people in Barbados? Well, what I would like to say, uh, Stephen, is that the events that unfolded on that fateful day in U.S. not just affected me, but I think it affected any right-thinking person around the world who saw the videos from that. It was quite an inhumane thing to happen to anybody. And the fact that um, it was happening to a black person really, I think it upset a lot of people, a lot of black people who for years have been complaining of this sort of thing. But here it was in black and white, so to speak, for the world to see exactly what was happening. And what unfolded before everybody's eyes was quite startling and, and, and quite frightening to imagine that something like that really in this day and age could happen. Consequently to that, obviously what it's done now is it's really awakened the consciousness of many people around the world to these injustices. Yes, I mean, I personally went on a Black, black Lives Matters protest 
meeting in Newmarket, Suffolk, with a very close friend. And, and I was struck by the conversations about discrimination and comments said to black people at that meeting. Yeah, I mean, it's um, it's a topic that I think people have avoided in the past. And really, what really happened in the US has really now pushed it very much to the front. Um, something that people cannot hide away from anymore. Something that has to be confronted and dealt with. I mean, do you feel that black people have been more prepared to speak out after these tragic events? Well, I think black people have always been prepared to speak out. They've spoken out before, but they were just not heard. I think what is happening now is that also in the past, obviously, a lot of white people have spoken out as well, but they were not heard as well. I think what has happened now, this thing has got so big that uh, people who have thought in the past, both white and black, that there's been major injustices are suddenly saying enough is enough. And, you know, people are speaking out and that really needs to happen. There's no point in believing something is wrong and you don't do anything about it. If, if, if that happens, really, you're really condoning what is going on. And, and to me, you are complicit in it. I think what people are doing now, they're waking up to the fact that, no, I have to be heard. And I think what has assisted them as well is this lockdown over the last four months has afforded people the opportunity to be at home most of the time, which means they spend a lot of time on their phones, on social media, on their computers, etc., etc. And as a as a result of all of these things going viral, I think people now have decided to get involved. So the pandemic in some way has really assisted uh, what is going on because millions and millions of people are actually not at work, uh, running around, doing things as they normally would. They're more they're at home and they've got time on their hands. I mean, you played a, in a Middlesex side with other black players, Norman Cowens, Wayne Daniel, Will Slack, Neil Williams. Did you experience racism when you were playing? I certainly didn't. Not to say that there wasn't racism around because racism has been around for hundreds of years. I personally didn't get much of that, nor did the, the players at Middlesex as far as I know. Um, I was not privy at any time to any of our West Indian players being racially abused, etc. I mean, it may have happened when I wasn't there, but certainly when I was around, nothing like that happened. Um, the closest... I came to hearing anything slightly racial was a game against Kent. And on the way back up after tea, someone in the crowd remarking, look, they've got five of them. As you said, we play, you know, really um, speaking about the five players, myself, we and Daniel, we'll slap Neil Williams and Norman Cowens as we, as we walked onto the field. So that, that was the only time that I really heard that. But I know there were times with other players, um, and I think people like Monty Lynch and Sylvester Clark, um, who had been abused from time to time. But at Middlesex, I certainly didn't see any of it. That's so wrong, isn't it? You were the first of 19 black British players to represent England at international level. And we had 33 first-class cricketers in, in England in 1994. And then yet last season, we only had nine. Why do you think that is? Uh, there's a variety of reasons. You know, West Indies back in my day were very dominant. The Clive Loy era only used, say, 19 players. So there were a lot of very good players, not in the international side, who played a lot of cricket in England, in the leagues, etc., etc. So, you know, if you think of the number of players that were there, I mean, people like Viv Richards, Andy Roberts, Curtly Ambrose, Joel Garner, 
all of those guys came out of playing in the Northern Leagues. So there was a lot of talent playing cricket. I think what has happened since then, a number of things. West Indies, since the 1995, really has been struggling as an international side. So they're they're no longer fashionable. I think the whole managed migration situation where it is now difficult for players to play um, in England, even as an amateur. In order to play in England, you know, you, you, you have to be, you have to have a permit in terms of you must be a current first class player, having played five matches within the last year. So the person who is not a first class player, but who could before get a contract with a club, a local club and player, that's no longer available. Um, also, they've brought in within this managed migration system that if you have played for a representative slide like the West Indies or whatever on the 15, on the 17, you're put on something called the pathway to, a prof- to being a professional. Even if you haven't played at all for, for, the, for the country for five or six years, you're still on that pathway. So that prevents you from coming as well. And also, you know, the reduction of overseas players for counties over time has affected that. So a number of reasons. And I think what that has done has, you know, has affected the young black players in England who really don't see an opportunity to get involved. You know, before, you know, they would all be supporting the West Indies. Um, They haven't got the West Indies to, to support. Usually the heavily populated areas in England for black people generally have pretty poor facilities yeah. for, 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 for practice or, or matches. Um, really, most of them are not involved in, in, in a club. Um, there's no coaching available for them. So, you know, a lot of things have happened. I'm not saying that it's a, it, it's a design, but it's happened that way that so many things have happened at the same time, which I think has affected um, the development of the young back players. It's I going think, back that in the 90s and in the 80s, there was the Haringey Cricket School. A friend of mine who played actually at March for one season, Joe Grant from Jamaica, who then played for Essex, he went to the Haringey Cricket School, as did Mark Elaine and Keith Piper. And that I think that stopped through lack of funding. And that that had provided quite a few black players a, a route to, to the first-class game. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that was led by Reg Scarlett, um, the old West Indian off-spinner who from Jamaica. Reg was able to get the Harangir Council to fund that. I thought it served a good purpose because, you know, he was able to get Harangir Cricket School to play against first-class counties, which exposed the young players, as you said, the likes of Mark Allen and Keith Piper. There were others. There were Darren Foster and Dublin and other players who were went on to play first-class cricket out of that out of that system. Something like that. You know, they got regular coaching training and exposure in terms of, of matches. I think we need more of those around the region. Um, unfortunately, um, because of funding the local council, I guess it, it had to finish, but it served its purpose. There's no question about that. And something like that, you know, if we can get something like that in most boroughs where um, there is something put in place to bring people through, then you will see the players coming back. As you know... Ebony Rainsford Brent has implemented a the ACE program. The ACE Put the program. words out of my mouth there. I've got that written down yeah. to speak to you about that. Yeah. Yeah, the ACE program where you know they were able to attract 100 youngsters to come out 
and trial. And they said the standard was extremely high in terms of skill, etc. I mean, even better than a lot of the players that already exist at, at Surrey. Having delved a little bit deeper, they discovered that these kids were not part of a club. They didn't have any form of coaching. Um, they didn't really have anywhere to play. And yet they were able to have skills at that level. Just imagine if you were able to put those things in place, um, the type of players that you would get. Again, I think more of these schemes are needed around England, uh, particularly in the city of London, yeah. Birmingham, you know, Manchester, Reading, where there are large black populations and Asian populations, because those communities love the game of cricket. Um, there's no question about it. It's very much in their DNA. But if you give them the opportunity and the facilities, you know, I think England could get a really good, diverse cricket team going forward. Well, I think the interest shown in the programme, the ACE programme by Ebony Rainford Brent, shows that there are, the, that there is the interest. Well, absolutely. I mean, you've just really got to create the environment. I think that's what is missing, um, the environment really to develop the, the talent that is there. And you know, most of the talent that was identified, you know, it was informal. You know, they learnt the game informally. They were not taught. It was not formally planned for them. You know, obviously, they, they just learnt by playing. Well, I read somewhere also, which you could do in cities more, is because you've got shortage of, of sort of playing areas, that uh, more of these cage cricket where you can get people started. Yeah, I think if, you know, any any artificial surfaces that, doesn't really need maintenance and you know people can come and, and practice you know I, I think if they put down a number of cages around the, the boroughs you know where people can come and, and, and get to, to, to practice the game of cricket um, you will see a lot more talent being available. Now are you confident that the ECB can take action to improve opportunities for black people? Well, I hope so. I think now they have been gifted a great opportunity. I think circumstances have conspired in a way to give them the opportunity to do something about it. I don't think any longer can they sit back and just allow things to continue. You know, things are fine in the, the private sector because private schools have, you know, great facilities, you know, they have coaches, you know, so they will produce players. But... The private sector is not the majority. And I mean, the majority is the public sector. So, you know, I, I think really that's where the focus has to be. The ECB really needs to lead the ball game in England. They are the governing body for cricket. And I think they've got a great opportunity. Now, the question is whether they will step up to the plate and take this opportunity. I really hope so, because if they do, I think they can reap great rewards. Yeah, I mean, it's... We've got slogans and stickers and people taking the knee, and they're obviously important symbols, but in the end it comes down to what action they take and what is delivered. Uh, I'm just going to read there what they've just said in their statement. It says, we will now work to engage community leaders and black influencers within cricket so that we can review and evolve our existing inclusion and diversity work and specifically address the issues raised by the black community. Yeah, I think that is that that is a start. All the other things about taking the knee, etc., is very symbolic, and you know, eventually people will, will forget about that. But what the ECB is saying there is taking a start. But I think they need to go further. They need to implement what they're saying there 
with the counties and also within the boardrooms of, of the first class counties, within the boardrooms of the county boards as well. I think that's where the real change has to take place. You know, if, if you just put a few schemes in place, that will only affect a certain number. But I think you've got to go right through the system. First class counties, minor counties, county boards, they have to deal in the boardroom and address issues in the boardroom as well. Yeah, so they had this recent survey, which um, the Telegraph uh, revealed that the sort of 20 major, 20 major sports in this country, I think there was only two, two black representatives out of about 110 board officials. That was in all sports. And that's quite staggering. Because you've obviously got to have some black coaches and black people in administration in the boardroom to actually make some of the changes that are required. Yeah, I mean, I don't. I mean, I said I, I, I don't think they should have the persons there because they're black. I am sure that they're very highly qualified black people to sit in those positions. All they're asking for really is a level playing field where they have the same opportunity as everyone else to be in those positions. I don't think, you know, you should put someone there because of their color. But if you and I are on the same starting line, then really, you know, it is between the two of us who wants it most. And I think... If black people are given the opportunity, you know, you would be absolutely surprised to see that those persons can come through and do a good job. But the the, the, the field has to be level. But role models are, are clearly important, though, aren't they, to, to have black coaches in positions and, and black players. Then other well, people, got, they can absolutely. aspire to doing the same. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, you know, the same way that the likes of Devon Malcolm and Gladstone Small and others were inspired to, to continue their quest to be international cricketers because I was given the opportunity to play for England um, you know they saw that and said to themselves well you know if he can do it I can do it so that that was an inspiration for them the same thing needs to happen within the boardroom that you know as you said if there were models sitting on these boards again that would inspire other people to say you know I can do that as well and that's really that's what you want you want people to to say that is possible and I can do it I think at the moment there's a feeling that it is not possible, so I don't think people will push themselves as hard as they should. It's like even when we go back to the uh, the cities where the need for some cage facilities, if there's not the actual grounds themselves, uh, there's no reason why the ECB couldn't put some funding into projects like that. I mean, absolutely. You know, I, I know obviously economically in England now things are going to be pretty tough because of COVID-19, uh, but at the same time, yes, you know, the ECB really needs to try and find this, the type of sponsors that would invest in people. And as you said, look to put these uh, facilities. You're not looking for elaborate facilities. You're not looking for big fields with manicured lawns, etc. As you said, some cages with some nets where players, people can go and actually hit balls. I mean, around the place, you find plenty of places for football where people can go, you know, put down a couple of jackets and play football. Not the same for cricket, but ECB really, they've got to take the lead, get the funding and ensure that it happens because they're the custodians of the sport. Yeah, I think you're right that when you say ensure it happens, uh, the spotlight now is clearly on them to actually come up with the goods really and take some action. Thank you very much for joining me this afternoon on this very important subject. And if it was possible, if we could speak about this uh, in another six months' time or something, just to review if things have changed and 
if programs have been put in place to make that possible. Yes, yeah, Stephen, it's a great pleasure. And I, and I really hope that in six months time that there is significant change um, for the better, um, because I think in the end, you know, English cricket will benefit. Well, thank you very much for joining me. Pleasure. Thank you for listening to The Paddock and the Pavilion. You can download the show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher and Spotify. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook at The Pad and Pad. Sports Social Podcast Network. It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.